Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. Today on the Clarinet Podcast, I've got something extra special for you, and what it is is an episode from my other show called OK Podcast, which is about my favorite band called Radiohead. Now, I recently recorded a conversation with someone who is a doubler. His name is Steve Hamilton, and he actually recorded saxophone on one of Radiohead's biggest selling albums, most popular albums called Kid A, which was released in the year 2000. Now, this was super exciting for me because it, in my opinion, is the best album of all time. It's by far my favorite album released by any musical group ever. Um, It has changed my life more than any other musical work, and I can't believe that I had the chance to speak to this person. But, you know, as I was recording it, I, I got thinking... This is something that I feel that the Clarinet audience would benefit from listening to because we really get to delve into the life of what it's like to be a professional touring and recording sax player with major rock bands. And you know what? This is not an area that a lot of us are very familiar with. So I uh, think back all the way to episode four of the podcast where Daryl Caswell was talking about making sure that you're not getting too blinkered and hung up on only what you do and that you explore other areas of your profession and even other professions in order to try and advance your own career. So I actually did post a poll in the Clarinet community on Facebook and I asked people if they would prefer me to leave all the Radiohead stuff in and I'm happy to say that people actually did vote for this to happen. So anyways, I do hope that you enjoy this episode. I hope that uh, you enjoy taking part in another one of my passions. And even if you don't enjoy it, I hope that you still appreciate this episode or that you just move on and listen to the next one. That would be okay too. I'm not going to expect every person who listens to this to suddenly become a massive Radiohead fan just because I am, or even really to like this genre of music, to be honest. But Before we get started, let me just tell you a little bit about the album and why it was so important and maybe just introduce you to the the, some of the concepts that that musically are in there. So in Radiohead's early days, they started off in about 1993 with a hit song Creep. And a lot of people thought that they would become basically a one hit wonder band and, and go nowhere after that single. Well, in 1995, they released their second album called The Benz. It was basically their most, uh, quote, normal rock album and uh, had a lot of basic song forms on there and a lot of really great music, which did make it to the radio airwaves, but nothing too revolutionary yet. In 1997, they released what many consider to be their best album called OK Computer. It was sort of a more progressive look at the rock genre and started experimenting with different timbres while still maintaining a basic rock song structure for the most part. Although some of the songs start to experiment with something called a terminal climax, which is where we basically go, instead of just uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, um, we'll have like a verse chorus, verse, chorus, and then a totally new section to close out the song, which makes it really interesting. A perfect example of that would be a song called Karma Police. Anyway, so Radiohead established themselves as one of the best rock bands of a generation, and they took all that and basically threw it out the window, and in 2000, they came out with the electronic-driven album called Kid A, which basically features just a bunch of really bizarre instrumentation. Many of these instruments, such as the Ons Martineau, had never been used in rock music before, to my knowledge anyways, and definitely not in a popular multi-platinum selling album that made the top of the charts in the UK. Um, anyway, so the songs on this album, the interesting thing is they explore totally different timbres and musical environments, and the voice of Tom York, the lead singer, is actually used more as an instrument 
of some sort and is very subdued in the mix for much of the recording. Um, oh, and interestingly, too, the, the vocals, a lot of the the um, the words were written by a means of writing out a bunch of different sentences, basically chopping them up, putting them in a hat and pulling out those lyrics and making very abstract, disconnected lyrics, which are not the primary focus of the song. So to me, that's one reason I love it so much is it, it really takes the music and makes that front and center. Um, that being said, the album is totally a slow burner. You're going to have a really difficult time like I did getting into it, probably, if it's your first time hearing it. I hated it for a long time, but it, it grew on me to the point where it's absolutely my favorite favorite album. So where does the saxophone come in? Um, well, at the end of a song called The National Anthem, which has a very repetitive bass line um, that actually stays the same for the entire song, there's a really chaotic saxophone and brass section that comes in and basically, in the words of the lead singer Tom York, is meant to sound kind of like marching into a traffic jam or something like that. And they really achieved this effect. I really wish I could play this song on the podcast, but there's been a lot of situations recently where podcasts are getting taken down due to copyright alleged infringement, even though I would consider that to be fair use. But so what I'm going to do in the show notes is link to a video where lead singer Tom York, one of the most legendary performances of this song, is basically bouncing around as it sounds like he was in the studio. And Steve Hamilton, who is today's guest on the show, is actually there performing on stage with the band. So again, whether or not you like Radiohead, I hope that provides a little bit of insight into why I find this album so interesting, why I'm so passionate about the band. And um, I really hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and take away not only what it's like from the totally other side of the classical realm, but also it really take in some of Steve's stories about um, working with this group and, and the lessons he learned. It's, it's, I think it's super valuable. Um, at the very end, for those of you who are compositionally minded, uh, Steve also shares some conversation about his other career as a film composer. So this is a really great episode. Like I said, I hope it's not too far-fetched for the Clarinet audience. Um, if it is, I'm really sorry. I'll see you next time for an amazing episode with none other than Stanley Drucker. So uh, we're going to have back-to-back here two episodes that should really um, please everybody. Make sure you tune in for the next episode, by the way. It was a lot of uh, content sent in by listeners. It's a Q&A. I think it's the best episode yet of the podcast. Stanley's super high energy, and the episode is actually for his 90th birthday. So, wow, this was the longest intro I've had in a while. I hope that provides you some context and doesn't leave you high and dry about Radiohead. That's one of their songs. Sorry for the pun. Um, but I, I, yeah, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and uh, we'll get to it right after these short messages from our sponsors. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new line of Lumiere clarinets, barrels and bells. Get 10% off your next accessory purchase by using code Clarinet at bakunmusical.com. Join renowned clarinetist David Schifrin at the International Clarinet Celebration in beautiful Portland, Oregon, June 24th to 30th. Hosted by Chamber Music Northwest, this event combines a full week of concerts by world-class artists like Corrado Giuffredi and Jose Frank Biester. There's also clarinet masterclasses, lectures, clarinet mentors amateur workshops, ensemble performance opportunities, a clarinet marketplace, and a young artist competition. Passes are on sale now, and you can learn more at cmnw.org. Dario Woodwinds has an exciting new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on their Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't had a chance to try Dario's new reserve clarinet reads, you're in for a real treat. They're using some really amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. You can pick up a box at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. 
I can assure you that no, they were all there and very much um, involved in the the whole procedure. You know, the whole procedure. He said to make it sound like a traffic jam, and then he just started jumping up and down, um, trying to get the energy that he wanted out of us. You're listening to OK Podcast, a podcast by Sean Perrin about by Radiohead. Sean Perrin about Radiohead. About Radiohead. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by extra special guest Steve Hamilton, who performed saxophone on Kid A. We dive deep into what it was like recording the national anthem at the studio with the band on site, what it was like playing live with the band throughout the Amnesiac and Kid A tours in 2000 2001. We also talk about what it's like being a professional saxophone player touring with major rock bands. At the end, we discuss how Steve's career as a film composer has been augmented by his experience playing for rock bands and his classical education in college. Show notes for today's episode are available at okpodcast.com slash three. The first thing I remember about it was that my son had just been born about 10 days before. I think it was the first time I'd sort of left the house with a in a professional capacity. But there was a bit of preamble be- before the session. Um, Johnny Greenwood was um, basically in charge of organising parts and, you know, it was, I think, his vision really to have, um, in fact, there were eight horn players in, in total on, on that track. So we, we sort of organised, um, picked a few players that we liked playing with. And um, and then he, I think he faxed, actually, um, it's probably before, e- I think it's before proper emails, actually, and um, I think he faxed me a part, which I, I may have somewhere, actually, which I can dig out. But it was basically saying that, um, you know, what it, his, his kind of vision of it, and he, he wanted to baritone sax, a bit of alto, a bit of tenor, and a couple of trombones, and one solitary trumpet. So it was quite an unorthodox um, horn section, really. Then we made our way to um, their studio in... Oxfordshire, a beautiful barn place. Um, and then it all got a bit rock and roll, really, I suppose. Um, I, do, do, I don't know how, how much you know about, you know, what, what took place that day. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd actually, a listener question came in and the person said, I'd like to know everything about the end of the national <laughs> anthem. <laughs> and I have to say, I have a bit of the same sentiment, but but let's step back a little bit. So how did the band get in touch with you? Did you already know Johnny Greenwood or... Um, it was a, f- a friend of mine, um, a guy called Andy Bush, who's, who's a trumpet player. He actually teaches at Abingdon School, which is where they all went. Ah. Um, and they, they, they kind of got in touch with him. And he he was a very close friend of mine at the time. And we, we had a horn section together called the Hook Horns. And um, whenever I'd get called to do something and needed a, a horn, a, you know, trombone and trumpet, I would I would call him and then we'd talk about who else to use. And likewise, he would do with me. So, um, so it, it, it kind of evolved from from that really, and they they kind of trusted him. And he's a he's a good guy. Um, so it, Andy and I, Andy Bush and I, um, put together a another six players, and um, coerced them into turning up at this barn. So <laughs> it's it's basically basically through through um, through him really that uh, you know that I think they just trusted him, and he, he's a, he's a Reliable sort, you know. He's he's not a heavy drinking, boozy trumpet player as quite a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're a bit quite a cerebral kind of band. So, um, 
so we yeah we, we kind of got the seal of approval and we we um we we showed up there in you know about five different cars parked up got our got our instruments out had a chat and I had a cup of coffee and talked a little rubbish um and then slowly in sure i think i think the band were actually stay living in the um barn at the time the people kind of Various degrees of dishevelment came down down the stairs, wearing kind of dressing gowns or looking like they'd been up all night, um, uh, slightly unshaven, and you know how how you, how you'd expect rock musicians, I suppose. <laughs> so they were actually there during the the session for this. Yeah, they were all there. Yeah, you know, that's so interesting to me because you know I, I talked to another clarinetist on my other podcast, Clarinet, yeah, about recording with a rock group once, one of my other favorite rock bands. And uh, I asked him similar questions about what the session was like, and the band leaders, the band members, weren't even there. So this is super exciting to me that Radiohead is so involved. And I guess it, I was, I was in some ways worried about talking to you because I was worried I might face some of that same disappointment. But, but this, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can assure you that no, they were all there, and very much um, involved in the the whole procedure. You know, the whole procedure. I, I would say that. Well, it was a double act, really. I mean. It, Everyone was there and chatting around, but you know they they know what their roles are in the in the band, oh, or they or they certainly did at that time. Um, Johnny was the kind of sort of mechanical put put the music together kind of merchant, and then uh, and then Tom would, <laughs> I th- well he he was an extraordinary character because he he has a mad look in it is a kind of mad expression that that you might get from him, mm-hmm. and he and he walked into the yeah, we'd all we were all setting up and you know doing what horn players normally do—just play play something that sounds difficult and impressive to to <laughs> show off. You know, I, I don't know if you know in your if you do that in your um, capacity as a clarinetist, but yeah. you know you put people fl- you know little flourishes in here. So yeah, you're getting yeah. all this cacophony, and he and he and Nigel Goodrich, who was producing, um was just getting a sound together and uh, in this room and it's a it's a huge cavernous room much bigger than most uh, traditional kind of recording studios um not much acoustic treatment around so it's quite live i think a couple of rugs on the floor if i, if I remember rightly but i'm not totally sure about that um and then they play they they basically let, let us play for this um you know reading from this very scant chart that was you know, cobbled together, basically um, a piece of paper with, you know, a series of instruments on it. Sometimes you obviously have um, just your own part, but it was a, you know, a full score, which means that um, you get all the instruments. So I think there's a baritone, uh, bass trombone, um, uh, tenor trombone, a couple of altos, two tenors and a trumpet. Pretty sure that's what it was. Um, So you'd have that all on one sheet and it would just you know play along but it of course it didn't really work exactly how they wanted it to because it's um mm-hmm. it was a kind of prototype idea so we we looked at that we played it um and then then Nigel that um Goodrich played the track we all got a sound together put, put the headphones on um just and just started playing and, and then then Tom came in and started um completely d- d- sort of disassembling it really i think mm-hmm. in what way um, well it, it because it basically it was time to chuck the music away chuck the chart away and um and he 
he would just say, actually, what, you know, just give it an impression of something else, just a bit more craggy, a bit more, um, a bit more spiky. And he was chucking all these adjectives at, at us. Um, and of course, with, with eight, eight people, it's quite difficult to <laughs> come to a cohesive decision about what he, ha- he actually meant. Um, and then I think he, then I think he said, to make it sound like a traffic jam, mm. um, which I think is a f- famous quote of, of his, but he actually did, did say that. And then he just started jumping up and down, um, trying to get the energy that he wanted out of us. Um, and we did probably maybe five, six, seven or eight takes. I, I can't really remember how many, but I do remember kind of all of us sweating by the end of it because he was really, I think it was just watching him kind of conducting us, but not not really conducting, um, that, that kind of made us put the energy in, into the room. Um, and it was, and it was great. And it sounded pretty mad. Um, you know, as, as, as you know, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit discordant. It's a bit, it's a bit random. Um, and yeah, he, he, and he, he just sort of instilled in us this sort of desire or more, uh, demand to play as craggily and out there as possible, really. So I want to unpack um, that a little bit. There's a few questions that come from that for me. So, yeah, go for, go for so at this point, you guys are recording as a wind section or with the full band? Like, it sounds like that there was sort of a... a no, no, the, the, the whole the whole track was recorded previously. Okay. And so, so we were just playing to their recorded material. So you had and, like um, vo- vocals, um, bass, some guitar, the Ons Martino instruments like that were already in there. Everything was in there, um, and but and the band, would, you know, I think I think Colin Greenwood would kind of sit in the corner, not saying much. He was quite a quiet character. I remember Johnny was Johnny was there, but being quiet. Um, Tom was, Tom had kind of taken over the directorial duties a bit. Interesting, and so. Yes, yeah, so, so it was, yes, it was it basically it was ready to go. Or, or, I, I think I'm I'm not 100 percent certain about this, but I think everything was on the track apart from the horns at that stage. Um, because when I when I heard it when it was released, it was um, pretty exactly how I I remember it. So I don't I don't think they tinkered too much with it. But um, oh, that's really interesting because one of my questions was uh, Tom York said on Canadian TV interview back in I think 2000 that he wasn't even coming up with full songs to the studio and he was kind of relying on the producer, Nigel Godrich to sort of put them together. And one of my questions was, you know, did you guys record large sections of takes together or was it layered with different instruments? I mean, did you even play more than one saxophone or was it the eight guys at once? And that it kind of just was what one of the takes was like. I think we, 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 I think we did all of the takes playing together. Um, there was a, there was a, there was an uh, American guy called Stan Harrison who was playing the baritone part. Which was um, slightly uh, sort of odds with everything else, um, and it it's you know quite a tricky featured part at the beginning. Uh, he's a f- fantastic baritone player. Um, you know, he, he he played on Sledgehammer and stuff by um, Peter Gabriel, and yeah, just he's played on everything. Um, he used to play with David Barry as well. So he was kind of the one um, playing that boom, bop, bop, bada, bop, that, that sort of rhythm. Yeah. That's, that's Stan. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. And so he was, he was, pl- so I think, I think the only separation there was, uh, we did a take where, or rather Stan did a take where there's just him playing. Um, I mean, it is t- 
20 odd years ago. So it's, yeah. it's, it's fairly, um, fairly vague in my <laughs> memory, but I think that's what happened. And then, um, and then once, and then I, I do remember there's a couple of chords at the end. Well, I mean, I call them chords, but sort of discords really. <laughs> um, and, um, I remember us just playing those as well a few times, probably about five, five or six times just to get a completely different harmony each time. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that they spliced that, that they, they took the whole, um, track that we'd played right from the beginning of the song and spliced on the two chords at the end. I think the kind of credential moments, I mean, you, you, you know, yes, the yes. track inside out, I'm sure. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, it was so, but yes, but in answer to your question, it was just, it was, we, we were playing the whole thing right through. And yeah, you know, I'm sure Stan did a track on his own as well. Just, just for an experimental thing. I think they wanted separation. Have the option of that. Um, and then we, we moved around parts, you know, so, somebody would pay, play the third or, or the fourth or something. And, and then just try it the other way around until, until they were happy really until, and I think they were because, <laughs> because mm-hmm. it, it was, it was, um, well, there is a story that he, he jumped so hard that he that Tom jumped up so hard that he broke his foot. Yeah, that was going to be um, one of my questions. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. <laughs> is that true? No, we, well, I, I don't know that at the time. I mean, he he was behaving slightly erratically. I, I don't know whether he broke his foot, but I think it wouldn't certainly wouldn't surprise me because he had bare feet and he was jumping around on this sort of wooden floor. You know, I mean, it may have may have had a rug on it, but. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was fairly frenetic kind of behavior. <laughs> so what was the atmosphere like as a musician? Like you said, first of all, I'm, I, I'm amazed that you were able to go there 10 days after your daughter was born. We had our first daughter over the summer and uh, first gig back yeah. being with Radiohead, I can't imagine the intimidation, especially as a fan. <laughs> well, I, 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 I wasn't intimidated because they're, they're such lovely blokes. And, mm. um, um, and it was... <sighs> No, there wasn't. It's the sort of place where you you go and um, every everyone made you feel comfortable, and they kind of they were over, if it's possible to be over friendly and over generous with their kind remarks. They would they were definitely going down that route rather than being offish, you know. And I've experienced everything in between um, as a session clip. As a session player, you know, rock artists particularly are are rather famous for not even being able to read music. I don't think Tom York reads music, so I, I wonder what for you the preparation was like for this, in the sense of feeling like you you showed up that day ready to go. I mean, is that just something that for jazzers you, you feel just ready to go in and make music? Well, I, I think there's always a sort of vague sense of trepidation about going in and not fully knowing. But on this occasion, you know, as I said, that we we did have we were forewarned with it that this. This um, full score thing had had been sent to me and Andy. I don't. I don't think the other, the rest of the um, players had it, but we, we we kind of looked at it and thought. <laughs> I think we I think we laughed to ourselves and said that that'll never that'll never be what we play on on the record. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we, when we were standing around and and the, I think it's a it's a converted barn that they bought. Um, they own the place and it's a cool cool little place. Well, when I say little, it isn't that little. Um, there's sort of lots of different levels, and I think, as I said earlier, the um, quite a lot of the band was sleeping upstairs when we first arrived. 
I've got no idea what time we arrived. It's probably about a midday call or something. Um, and, you know, there's always that preamble of having a coffee and having a chat and, you know, wasting a bit of time. But some people just want to get, you know, as you know, you, you know yourself, want to get down to it straight away and start recording. But it, it was a very, very, it was, you, you were there for the whole day. That was the, that was the feeling as soon as we arrived. Um, and, uh, and we, we did, we were probably about, probably for about two or three hours we were playing this track. And then, um, and then somebody, I think, I think Colin said, do you, do you, anyone hungry? And somebody just uh, magicked up a lasagna and salad and a couple of bottles of wine. Wow. And we all, we all just sat around and, and one thing I do remember is that they had a, a really lovely turntable and they were playing vinyl, which sounded brilliant because they, they obviously have fairly decent speakers as well, <laughs> being radiohead. And um, so we, and we just sat around and picked some, somebody put a record on, somebody else put a record, you know, and it was a really lovely atmosphere, actually. And they were, they were incredibly... Um, Delighted with how the session went. You know, not blowing my own trumpet here, but they, yeah. they were—they were, you know—they—they they got what they wanted, I think. So they made us feel very welcome in their in their in their studio, and you know, quite a cavernous building. And we we were all just sitting around um, eating eating food and chatting, and yeah, it was like being with old mates. Actually, it was bizarre. I love that it's like I said. I love that it's basically like I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lovely. It was a lovely day. Yeah, there was. And, you know, to your viewers, I mean, if you, we joke about this, you know, giving a, how do you make a musician um, miserable? Give him a gig. And because <laughs> musicians tend to uh, really kind of um, moan about things, but there was, it's one of those things where there's nothing to moan about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it was, um, yeah, it was, it was really good fun. And, you know, they, they got exactly what they wanted and it was, it was quite an inventive um, a few hours as well, you know. They, they, there was nothing set in stone particularly. They wanted a few things hit, a few things marked, I suppose, different sections. But they wanted chaos, and they they kind of got it a, a little bit. Um, but yes, it, it wasn't just of one take. It was several, several things, and it yeah. slightly nur nurturing the parts along. If you see what I mean. Yeah, totally. And yeah. so you were a previous Radiohead fan, as you said yourself. Um, mm. How did this music compare to what you sort of expected? I mean, they, they famously took a big shift for this album. The National Anthem was the first track that I'd heard since OK Computer, I mm -hmm. think, was it? Yeah. So yeah. it was like, this doesn't sound like Radiohead very much. <laughs> um, it's quite trippy, very trippy kind of vocal. Um, and that bass line is amazing bass thing. Um, it, it, it kind of took me by surprise. But it's funny how something can grow on you if you play it 10 times. <laughs> what did you think of that bass line in that song the first time you heard it? I mean, I've heard people who are musicians especially go, like, that's it? <laughs> you know, just like a drone, ostinato-type bass line and, and not much to the song, that, but that's what I love about it. That, that's what I love about it, too. Uh, yeah. I, total agreement. It, it's it's, it's trancey. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, it, it's trippy. It's, it's you know, there's so much energy just in that, you know. Um and yeah, so it was. Yes, I think I think it was. It was a huge departure, as everyone knows. But it, that was that was really refreshing to to hear that that first thing come in, dong dong dong. You know, and and the, the you know the twisted vocals and great drum sound as well. Yeah, 
It's just an yeah. amazing soundscape. Did they let you preview any other tracks they were working on or ask you to contribute bits to others that maybe were unreleased? Uh, unfortunately, no. We just they, they wanted us for, for one one task, one task alone, and that was just to, to do that. Because so. also on Amnesiac, there is a little bit of this at the end with the clarinet and the sort of New Orleans-style jazzy bit. Yeah, and with... Uh, Humphrey well, Littleton, we, we, is, that his, is that his name? Yeah, Jim, Jim, yeah Humphrey Littleton, um, who's a great broadcaster. He's, he's not with us anymore, but um, yeah. uh, Jimmy Hastings was playing clarinet, I, I think. Yeah, I've tried to reach oh, him several times. I haven't been been able to get in touch. So yeah, well, well, I, I don't, I don't really know him, but I know, I know of him. He's he's like a sort of old school jazz clarinet player, but it was, you know, a sort of a really delightful sound that they they had. In fact, I think we did, um. Uh, we did a we did a, a Jules Holland. I don't know if you know Jules Holland over there. Um, that was literally my le- next question: Is did you play oh, on the Jules Holland and any other live times with the band? Yeah, we we well okay. For, so the next the next thing I think we did after after that album, you know, I have, we we had our lasagna and we bit, bit off bit off farewells and um, went home. Um, I think the next thing we did was a live a live album or, or a live series of tracks, which I'm not not sure. Of, Ever came, ever came out, which was at Air Studios. We recorded about five that with this time with the band um, mm-hmm. and all, all the same horn players, and we did a maybe about three three takes of national anthem, and then they they I think they recorded the whole album live, but I've never found I don't I don't know where that was that in New yeah, York or in London. No, that that was in uh, London, a place called Air Studios. I think um, I have a recording of that. Yeah, so that's, uh, for the fans then, that's the most authentic version kind of, because it also has the original wind players. Is that what you're saying? That's it, that's it, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was completely live. And, and I think we did, yeah, two or three takes of each track. But again, we only played on, on that one. Um, but yeah, well, I'd love to, to hear that, actually. If, I could uh, send it to you, yeah. Yeah, yeah that would be um, fantastic, yeah. Have you played live in any other? So you played on Jules Holland and the Air Studios. Well, well then then they then they phoned us up and said, um, would you like to come and play on Saturday Night Live? Uh, and which was, yeah, in New York. So we all went over there. And I think it was the day that... Um, uh, that, that the, the album went to number one in the Billboard charts, hmm. um, and we we did a gig at the Roseland Ballroom in New York, and then I think a couple of days later we went to um, uh, to do Saturday, Saturday Night Live, which was great fun. And just again, just playing that track, um, I think they I think they played another track as well on the um, on Saturday Night Live, but I can't remember what, what that was actually. I think it was, um, was Idiotech. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like a walking Radiohead encyclopedia. <laughs> you are indeed. It's very impressive. <laughs> so, so we did, we did that, and that was fantastic. Um, great fun, you know, to be there, and it was the atmosphere at the Roseland Ballroom, which I played at before with a couple of bands before um, many years ago, and it, it was absolutely on fire. You know, really amazing atmosphere. So that was part of a normal full length concert, right? Yeah, that was that. Was, that they they did a whole gig. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, the one regret I have is that I I got food poisoning. Oh. On the on, on the night before we flew, and I was pretty sick on the plane, and I, and I couldn't oh, no. really enjoy it. And we had, yeah, we had that gig the next day, and I remember thinking, oh my god, I feel terrible. 
but um yeah it, it was it was still fantastic and then uh, and we were there for about 10 days i think in in new york um doing very little other than you know those two you know the Saturday night live and Rosalind. and what else did we do we we went to paris and did canal plus which yeah. is um and that was that again that was they i think they did two two tracks um obviously national anthem being one of them and then they sort of casually almost nervously said oh we guys come in come into the dressing room and um and they they very kindly given us um multi-platinum discs of kid a wow. which is really sweet yeah and you got to send me a picture of that that would be amazing yeah i would do wow. yeah yeah. Wow. yeah which was like and then they said thank you so much and again as as i said before they were so overly grateful almost embarrassingly grateful <laughs> for our input this is so and fantastic that, though and you know i love the fact it also speaks to their artistic integrity that they not only shared that with you guys but they also felt the urge to fly the specific horn players around the world to play with them yeah well, it, well, it, well i mean it could have been so much easier and cheaper to, to not do that <laughs> oh and this happens all the time and you know this maybe answers the question there's some fans who always say well why don't they fly the horn section around or why don't they have a horn section on national anthem we'd love to hear it that way live but but maybe yeah. it's because you know they 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 want to sort of stick to that integrity of the original people i'm not sure well well i wonder i mean you could tell me better than, than I would know myself. I don't know if they've ever done it with other horns. I, I'm not. I'm not sure that they have. At this uh, point, I'm not sure either. I mean, no. They, I, they, they of course have a version without horns. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. But 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 I, I've never seen anyone else play on it. Um, yeah. Wow. So that's amazing. That, that's, that's, that's amazing, and a first time for for that. <laughs> yeah. In the record, in the music business. Well, it's, like I said, it speaks so highly to their integrity as artists and uh, and their appreciation for what you did. Yeah, I th- well, it's yeah, it's, it seems to, um, and yeah, as I said, it could they could have easily not not had us there, and but yeah, they, so they included us in that, um, and then I think that was it. I think I don't think I don't think we did, ever did anything more with them, um, but but I mean, the the, the funny thing was that um, you know, as I said, they were so effusively over. Um, kind of praising us all the time yeah uh and then i bumped in i was at i was at abbey road doing a session for a band called stereophonics oh, i don't yeah. know if you know them yeah um and I, I walked into the cafe and um tom york and nigel were in there and i and i said well, well hi guys nice to see you and they said yeah oh, hello how are you doing how are you doing you're right and um and i, I said so you what, what are you doing they, they're mastering their next album hmm um, and I said, "Oh, so no, no horns on this one." And, <laughs> and he said, "They all said, um, no, you lot were a nightmare.'" <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So in stark contrast to all the um, the gushing about. So you know, and then I sort of quizzically looked at it, and then they said, "No, only joking. You're brilliant." <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I would hope they were joking. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it was yeah, they were a lovely bunch, and um, yeah, it's a shame it's a shame they didn't want any more on the next album. That would have been a yeah. It seems amazing. like something they've sort of they still have strings sometimes, but their horns have been really really rather lacking. Um, yeah. What did you think of the live version without the uh, saxophones? Did you ever? Well, there's something huge missing, I think. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but then it it kind of sounds like a completely different track. But yeah. 
I, I do love the track anyway. I think the, the, the sort of energy and the motion and that, particularly that bass, is just so brilliant. You know, it, I, I remember listening to it once. Actually, I think I, I'm not sure if it was a Glastonbury thing or um, it might have been another Jules, Jules Holland. But anyway, it was it was some broadcast, and um, I, I remember I didn't even notice it, that there weren't any horns until the end chord. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, you, you know, because it because it it drives itself. It's you know. Yeah, they fill it out in its own way. And they're sort of famous for, especially with Kid A, reinventing the songs live, which was almost a necessity. Yeah. So is there something that I might not think to ask about the sessions that would be interesting and worth sharing? It, it was it was a very sort of calm... I mean, even though the music isn't calm, um, there, there was a, a, a very sort of passive kind of attitude to it. Just a very, you know, just let this... I think I think they get what they want, what they want or what they desire by just letting things mutate and just shape you know from a little tiny little as i said that score that they they sort of gave us at the beginning they i think they just wanted it to evolve a little bit throughout and they were they weren't that bothered about how long it took if it had taken seven hours it wouldn't have mattered to them at all Mm. um and it was just a i think that's what made it so sort of attractive for all of us and you know we when the phone went you know months later or whatever to go to do something else with them you know like the new york thing um, we all jumped at it because it was it was just a lovely atmosphere um but i don't know if there's anything particularly that was surprising apart from tom probably breaking his foot if he, if he <laughs> broke I, I, I think he probably did at least at least sprained <laughs> it let's say that <laughs> yeah yeah we'll keep that going <laughs> So, of course, you've also toured with artists like, or, or, toured and recorded with artists like Aretha Franklin, Amy Winehouse, Alicia Keys, Beyonce, Bono, many others. And even when I contacted you recently, you were on tour with Noel Gallagher. So this is something that's that's really ongoing for you and has been for your whole career. Um, what's this like as a professional kind of day-to-day gig? I went to music college and I sort of didn't do an awful lot of what I was supposed to be doing there, which was classical saxophone. Um and I, I, I just used to listen to, you know, King Curtis and sort of rock, solely rock uh, players. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I wanted to do. And I remember saying to my teacher, John Hall, um, I really want to be a, a rock or pop saxophone player. And he said, no chance of you doing that, mate. <laughs> and I said, what? And, and it, 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 from that moment on, I thought, it's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know why, to this day, he said to you, there's no chance of doing that. Do you think um, he just meant it's not sustainable? I mean, it, it's insane. I don't know. I, I've I've seen him a couple of times, and I, I must I, I must ask him one day what he meant by that. I, but I think I think he got I think he meant to just make me yearn to do that because mm. he, he he kind of played mind games with people, reverse psychology. And, yeah, exactly. So so he 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 discouraged me from even thinking about it, which made me obviously want to do it more and, and that's that's all I've ever done really as a, as a player so yes so so I started playing I think it's in 96 with Blur um, I'm, I'm not sure how big Blur are in, in the States these, but but we did we did a big American tour yeah, and yeah. Um, they're obviously the arch rivals of Oasis at the time and um, so I did several tours with them um, I've been in house bands where I've played I did a, a thing for um I think it was Nelson Mandela's 91st birthday party at Radio City in New York. And that was where, where I had the joy of playing with Aretha Franklin mm-hmm. and Stevie Wonder. Um, 
and uh, many other people. And let me think who else you mentioned there. Um, another another series of concerts in uh, Cape Town and Johannesburg in South Africa. I was part of the house band there and um, Beyonce, um, Alicia Keys. So, it, you know, it, it was pr- it was pretty good. You know, three weeks rehearsal um, down in, in South Africa was fantastic. And then um, one gig and, um, you know, one gig at each venue. Um, and we did that a few, we did that in London at Hyde Park as well with, you know, Amy Winehouse, just about a year before she died. Um, but incredible! It's an incredible privilege to have played with all those people. And now, now I'm doing a tour. Well, I just finished a world tour last year with um, Noel Gallagher from Oasis, the, the writing strength of Oasis. Oasis. And um, then, yeah, I think I think we're going on the road again from May. We're going to Japan. But yes, we're lots and lots and lots of travelling. Um, uh, lots of late nights. It's very tiring. Lots of time away from home, obviously, which can be tricky with children. Hmm. Um, but yeah, lot just constantly on the road. And, and I don't know if you know a band called Madness. They're, they're like a national treasure in in Britain. They're 40, they're forty years old this this year. Actually, the fortieth anniversary since they recorded their first single. And I, I play with them as well, and have done for seven years. And we've done a few tours of America with them, but that's, so that's an ongoing thing as well. And I play baritone sax with them, and but baritone with with Noel as well. For all these artists, are any of them, or have any of them since been as sort of like welcoming as as Radiohead was, or do you get to meet these people or interact with them at all? I, I, I sort of bump into people a lot. You know, I know I know a lot of. I, I mean. You know, obviously, I'm not famous, but I know a lot of famous people, and and I bump into people along. Uh, you know, I, I bumped into Damon Albarn fairly recently at a at a concert. You know, the singer from Blur and the Gorillas. Um, and yeah, it's nice to sort of catch up. Um, I don't think anyone. I think, think in answer to your question, I don't think anyone's as quite as welcoming as Radiohead were actually. Uh, funnily enough, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they they. Yeah, they excelled themselves. <laughs> Do you have any travel tips for musicians? I mean, I can't imagine what it's like uh, hauling a baritone saxophone around the world. That's like, a, how much does it weigh? 30 pounds? <laughs> it, it, no, it's 30 kilos. Oh, 30, 30 kilos. 30, 30, so that's, yeah, it's quite a lot. Uh, it's, well, I, I nowadays I don't touch it until I get to the gig because there's a crew that, and um, there's somebody who carries it around for me and, it, you know, it, it'll travel with the crew. But yes, I've had, I've done, I've carried all sorts of saxophones all over the place. Um, but it's 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 a nightmare <laughs> lugging a lugging a baritone sax on a plane because, firstly, if you put it in the hold of an aeroplane, it will come out in several pieces rather than as a as a whole. Yeah. So it, it travels overland in a in a in a truck, um, and it's it's got a very substantial flight case as well. So. Um, but tips for people, yeah, don't don't carry your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> get a roadie. Get someone, else, get someone else to do it. Road crew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, it is quite nice, and that hasn't always been the case. But now, I, I you know, fortunately, I I can turn up at a, a at a concert venue and get my saxophone out of the case, and then put it back, and and then not see it again until the next until the next day. So. 
So well, I was, was going to ask how you, you keep your chops up and stuff between the gigs, but if it's a rock tour, I imagine it's pretty much every day and you've got warm-up time and it's not really an issue. Well, the, the, we, we have a dressing The horn section, currently, we have we always have our own dressing room. We can we can get there, you know, typically a, a sound check will start from at 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 5. The, the gig will be at 9-ish, so there's plenty of time to do some long notes and you know, kind of make yourself presentable sound wise. And, mm-hmm. um, the reality of that obviously is that sometimes that doesn't happen because you're in an exciting place and you, and you, you know, like we were in Chile a couple of months ago, or Buenos Aires or something. And you don't really want to practice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but I, I think, you know, we've all got our routines of trying to, you know, even even if it's just with a a, a neck of a saxophone and, and a mouthpiece, just to blow some notes and form non-musher and mm-hmm. um, get the muscles so that they don't flag during the, the actual gig. Um, so, yeah, you, you you can take precautions and and you know some, sometimes I take the soprano sax with me and done a, a few long note practices. But it, it, the reality, to if I'm honest with everyone, is that that doesn't happen so much. Mm. <laughs> Well, and so yeah. you're, you're, of course you're also a doubler, and for those who don't know it, um, doubler with woodwind players really means like quadrupler or <laughs> or more, um, and especially for saxophonists because I'm not sure which saxophones you own, I, but that could be the entire family from from bass saxophone all the way up to sopranino, and uh, so Steve, you yourself also play flute, clarinet, and bass clarinet. So how many instruments do you own, and what's the most number you've had to take on the road at a time? Um. Well, I've got—I don't know how many I. I've got a lot of saxophones, um, and I've got a fair amount of clarinets as well. Um, I mean, I, I, because of the sort of nature of the work that I'm doing at the moment, I don't tend to play a lot of clarinet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I was always a sort of very heavily a saxophone player, rather than a rather than um, you know. I know a lot of people split fairly fifty-fifty, particularly theatre players and stuff. Um, which which I've I've never really been involved in 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 that kind of work. Uh, yeah, every now and again, of course, I have. But so I, in answer to a question of how many do I take away, uh, probably only about three instruments, three saxophones, but always the baritone and the tenor. Um, the alto doesn't get much of a, a, a look in these days. Um, soprano I play a fair bit, but I've got. You know, I've got flight cases for all of them, so so it's it's fairly easy to do. But it's always, it's nice to take a flute away sometimes as well. But it's, sometimes you just think, well, how many <laughs> how many instruments do I really need? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I, not 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 a huge amount that I actually take away. But I've, I've certainly got a lot of saxophones, and they're all stuck on the wall at the moment, um, hang, hanging on. Uh, Fancy hangers. So, how many instruments nice. would you say you own in total? I've got, I think, eight saxophones. Wow. Um, five, five clarinets, one bass clarinet, several flutes, um, all, all sorts of, all sorts of things. Um, hundreds of penny whistles because every now and again you you have to play one of those. Um, it's a problem with musicians. I don't know if you've seen that Bird Box movie from Netflix. Did you Did you hear about that? I saw it. I saw it about three days ago. Yeah. So there's a little meme yeah. that's come up. There's a picture of someone in a guitar store with their eyes covered, like I can't look, I can't look. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great film, actually. 
Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I I, yeah. but I definitely relate to the guitar concept. You know, if you see it, you're going to buy it. And you, musicians yeah, have sort I of like a that. horn yeah. collecting problem, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my wife one time looked and she's like, why do you have three of those? They look the same. And they're bass guitars. And I said, well, that one's fretless. That one's a fretted jazz. And that one's a fretted P bass. They're totally different. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah, the, 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 yeah we, we, we get it. We get it. <laughs> yeah, but to her, it's just boom, 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 boom. <laughs> same thing, so... Well, it's like that that thing that the uh, guitarist says, um, whatever you do, don't, you know, when I die, whatever you do, don't sell the my instruments for what I said that I paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's another truth, eh? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I was only a couple of hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 3,000 3, later. <laughs> you can get good deals, but those instruments are usually stolen. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> so... You know, yeah. in, as a clarinetist or a saxophone player, I was also wondering when you're on stage, um, speaking of, you know, accessories and equipment, what is some of your favorite stuff to take with you on stage that helps you sort of get through the gig? Uh, well, I, I had a bit of a disaster recently. Um, I, I think I, it was somewhere, I think it was in South America and it, it was quite hot. I think it might be Buenos Aires, actually, and we were doing a gig and this, this is how this is how unprofessional I was on this particular occasion. Because I, I I put my uh, baritone on my sling, the sling snapped, and for the first time ever that I can remember, I didn't have a spare one. Oh wow! And and we we were just about to go on, literally in about forty seconds time, we were go, going on. Um, and so I, I, apart from apart from always carrying something, always carrying spare reeds in your in your pocket onto onto the stage. Uh, obviously, water, yeah. Um, but always have a spare sling as well. And I had to, I had to fashion a sling out of a belt. Wow! I, I got one of the guitar techs to to make another hole in in a belt and quickly put it around my neck. Bit of string, couple of tunes, and then the, we went off. And then I kind of fixed the, the fixed the strap. But yeah, that was a bit of a nightmare. Um, but yeah, just the the other things that I would say, I, mean, I don't, I don't really teach. I, I used to teach a little bit, but. But the thing that I would say to anyone is make sure every single note on the instrument works. Mm-hmm. So I, the, if you're traveling a lot and you, you kind of warm up the baritone and you, it sounds great and then you play the tenor. And, but, you know, cer- certain notes stick um, pretty badly. And and it's, if, if they've been in a flight case and, and they've been traveling in, you know, sort of humid conditions and why... Um, an an E flat key or the right right hand little finger stuck and it it basically every time I went to play an E flat it it played a D (laughs) so it was a horrible clash and it was just one of those stupid things you know being like so I'm I'm constantly what I'm trying to say is I'm constantly learning to (laughs) to make sure that those sort of things don't happen basic stupid mistakes but um, it can happen to anyone play every single note on the instrument make sure you're Reed is is nice and wet and vibrating well, and um, well, you you know the you know the deal for yourself. It's do you always have spare reeds in your pocket? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And even yeah. sometimes, if I'm going to be outside, I've played on those plastic reeds before. Yeah, I don't know if you've tried those, but uh, yeah, I, I you know I like them actually. The uh, legere ones for for baritone. Yeah, they're made in Canada, yeah. actually. Yeah, they're, they're, I think they're fantastic. You know, it's really funny to listen to the uh, stark contrast between um, what you're describing 
and what I've spoken to Broadway players about. I mean, when you're playing, do you have almost like a saxophone tech that tours with the band or are you responsible for this kind of maintenance yourself? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't really need a, a tech. I mean, what, one of the crew will always put my instruments in the dressing room. Um, oh, and then you get to and, assemble it yourself and, and do all that. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really want anyone touching it. I mean, you know, to, that they, they put both my flight cases in, in the dressing room and put the, open them up. And then I, you know, it's, it's always a, quite a pleasure to put, your, put the instrument together. Yeah, sorry. I guess I misinterpreted. I thought you meant that you showed up and it was kind of set up for you ready to go. Oh no, no. I, I, it's the, 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 the lids are open off the case, and I just put them. I just put them together and um, and you know spend half an hour playing them really. And but no, I'm not. I'm not that much of a prima donna that I have someone kind of uh, <laughs> soaking my reed for me. But, yeah, well, it'd make me super I, nervous too. You know, I mean, I I wouldn't want anyone to you know because there's a kind of we've all got our idiosyncrasies of how we put our horns away and. It's like a ritual. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, I, I've always quite enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I certainly don't need one. <clears throat> so the last thing I wanted to ask you about was um, your film scoring career, which has been quite involved over the last 20 years. First of all, how did you get into film scoring from your start as a saxophone player doing pop charts? I think in about 97, 98, I started writing music for TV commercials. Um, and got very lucky with the first one I attempted, actually, which is a Shreps um, campaign, which, you know, I, I did it totally on spec. I, um, no, no demo fee or anything. I just wrote this piece of music. And um, they, they kind of loved it. A few tweaks later, it, it ended up going, I think, it's about 78 different countries, which wow. is obviously good financially. Um and um and it and they they played it for about six years in quite quite a few of those countries so it was it, and it was quite i thought well this is really easy you, i just had a had to do a 15 second version a 30 second version and a 60 i think and then then i, I sort of got the idea that that was quite an easy way of making money um <laughs> um and just progressed from there really and, and st- started doing working for the same advertising agency young and rubicum which is i think now rainy kelly um um and yeah start, started doing that and then then really then i then i got offered um to work for the bbc on a on a correspondent um program about the the uh the war that radovan karadich actually um who was a nasty piece of work in um in Bosnia, and and it was it was and I and I, it was quite emotive Eastern European music, um, and I just suddenly realised I loved writing longer form stuff, and um, just I think I've written for about four, maybe maybe forty commercial forty um, long form documentaries for the same company, did a lot of work for the BBC, and then and then then started getting into doing short films and I've written a couple of feature films as well, but it's, it's not, it's not, it's not possible to kind of, um, um, that maintain the sort of energy of doing that when you're on tour for a year. That's the, that's the, that's the snag. How do you practice film scoring? I mean, it doesn't seem like one of those things that you said you went from short to long form, but, but how, I mean, do you sit down and put on sort of a screenplay without music and just practice writing along to it or? I did actually, yeah. That's that's pretty much exactly what I did. I I 
I remember getting clips of music of of um, not music of, of like the the Hindenburg when it when it got blown out of the sky and it and it and I remember writing a like a one one and a half minute just a, a sketch of, of sort of an orchestral piece and I, and I did practice on that actually and, and there was there was something kind of haunting and sinister about this this airship that was just I think it was full of um, of hydrogen gas wasn't it and and it and there's a cracky old film black and white film of it just disintegrating in the sky. So do you think of the musical ideas first or you let the pictures influence what you're well, going to I, write? I, I really love watching something and, you know, help, helping the story being told, really, not 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 forcing people to, to feel the emotions that you want them to feel, but um, just supporting what's going on. And you could, you could take it in any direction, pulling people's heartstrings as, as you want, but it's, it's good to be really honest with how, how you actually feel about um, the scene and then write write accordingly, um, and you can you can be very schmaltzy, but and I kind of practiced with that. I wrote about four four different pieces. As primarily a sax player, what is it like realizing your musical ideas? Because whenever I think of a composer, I usually think of someone sitting on a piano, right or wrong, and kind of just working through their chordal ideas. But as a sax player, do your ideas come differently? Or no, I, I use the piano as well. Uh, I, I don't. I very rarely use the saxophone as. But, you know, in any score that I've ever come up with, I'm, you know, every every now and again it's appropriate, but it it's it, the the two things are very separate. You know, I I play keyboards and and um, program everything myself, and you know, use use a lot of other instruments as uh, instrumentalists as well. Um, but yeah, the saxophone just take, takes a back seat. It's not. I, I think I'm not a saxophone player when it comes to writing really particularly at all. It's kind of like putting on different hats almost. It, it's totally, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. So who, who does one study with, or how does one study for this type of of, uh, of career? I mean, you said you did a classical saxophone studies in college, but then afterwards, did you pursue additional study or got your practice through doing? Or I didn't, actually. I mean, when I was at college, and, and this, this teacher of mine, who was a classical sax teacher called John Hall, he, and he he kind of, um, in a sense, rubbed me up the wrong way because he he would he would you know as I said earlier he he could try and discourage me sometimes but it all it would all all it would do is you know reverse psychology and, and make make me absolutely determined to do what I wanted to do in the first place but he but as but I I you know I've exhibited quite an interest in in writing stuff. Um, when he was teaching me, and I, and I, I said, you know, John, should we have a? Can we have a lesson? Just kind of writing something. He said, sure, yeah, because he was a composer as well. And he, and he said, I'll tell you what, we, we won't do anything. We'll just we'll go to the pub. We'll have a couple of pints, and <laughs> and uh, which we did. And he said, but listen, go go home tonight and listen to Prince, uh, Sign of the Times, which I had stuck in my car at the time. Um, I said, no, I don't need to listen to it. I, I love that album. He said, well, well, listen to that and then realize that you can write anything you want because mm. there are no rules. So, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't know if you can learn it. I, I think you practice your craft um, just like, you know, practicing a clarinet or flute or saxophone or anything else. But when it comes to writing, I think you have just have to be in the moment and know what f- functional harmony is and, know what you're doing but just do whatever you want 
that's honest to yourself and to the picture. That's that's what I would say. But I, I'm sure there are the, the film colleges full of people practicing and learning stuff. But best way is to do it. Do you, you feel know? that it's absolutely benefited you to be a competent uh, sax player and music? Um, professional first though i mean i think a lot of people try and just dive into composition as its own entity it's very very useful to be able to to have a a good musical education um and and to be an instrumentalist as well of some sort you know what god doesn't matter what you play but i think i think it really does help yeah because you know you also know then how to get the the best performances out of musicians that you then hire. Going back to very briefly to the Radiohead thing, because they're all great players. They know how to get things out of people. And some bands that I've played with in the, in the past are hopeless and don't know don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, it's 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 one of those things, isn't it? I think I, yes. So, in answer to what you just said, I think it's for me it's crucial to have been an instrumentalist and to continue being an instrumentalist. Um, you know, for as far as my writing career goes as well. I think you've really hit the nail on the head. Uh, my big takeaway of this conversation is that almost achieving the atmosphere or the artistic environment is somehow almost on equal footing to all that other stuff. I mean, it sounds like with Radiohead, they were able to bring out what they wanted. And that sort of lesson of communication allows a transcended art form, you know? So when you have musicians in your studio playing your piece, mm. you can provide that sort of comfortable, open atmosphere where something can happen. Yeah, exa- exactly. That, that, and you, you always get the best out of people if they're relaxed and they're happy. Yeah. You know, feed, feed them well and uh, be nice to them and be interested, you know. Um, well, you made that joke at the beginning too about, you know, how to make a musician miserable, give them a gig. It's so true because they, <laughs> it is, so yeah. many are so negative or, you know, and, but there's yeah. reason for it too sometimes. I mean, you go to something, you get paid in a beer and no, no one was nice to you and it was cold. And- <laughs> It can it can be terrible. <laughs> you can be you know you can be used and uh, you know come out with nothing, uh, no money, no satisfaction. But um, <laughs> but it's on, yeah, that was the total um, antithesis of that. You know the, the Radiohead experience. So, which film composers would you just absolutely love to work with, or who do you, do you draw inspiration from? Well, I mean Morricone, I absolutely love. Um, I mean, I'm a massive Godfather fan. I've got mm. Godfather stuff all over the place. So Nina Rota, uh, Bernstein, Elmer Bernstein, um, obviously Bernard Herrmann. But yeah, just all, all, but you know, it's quite a few of those, those guys aren't around anymore. I absolutely love listening to, I, I buy more film score, um, original soundtrack CDs than anything else. I'm like that too. It's almost a weird... I've done it since I was young. I used to listen to, you know, for example, James Bond soundtracks, and I oh, loved, God. I, I loved yeah. listening to how they would change the melody up and explore yeah. the theme in different ways. It was super interesting to me. They were to me like symphonies, you know. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. The atmospheres are brilliant. I mean, my yeah. wife thinks I'm nuts listening to that stuff all the time. But <laughs> well, I think we've covered everything I wanted to sort of touch on. Was there something else you wanted to add, or no? I think I think I'm. I'm no I think that's it really you know you're very welcome to call me again no thank you again for for speaking with me today it's been a my absolute pleasure thank you for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet podcast show notes for this and all other episodes can be found at clarinet.com 
While you're there, don't forget to join our email newsletter for free updates, exclusive offers, and a chance to win giveaways. Guests' requests, listener feedback, and comments can be sent to feedback at clarinet.com. Special thank you to our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Don't forget to check out their new show, Don't Blow It, on Instagram, and also try a box of their new reserve clarinet reads next time you're at the music store. The show is also brought to you by Chamber Music Northwest. With over $20,000 in prizes and world-class guest artists and vendors, their upcoming clarinet celebration and competition is an event that you don't want to miss. Learn more at cmnw.org. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new line of Lumiere clarinets, barrels, and bells. Get 10% off your next accessory purchase by using code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. This program was produced and hosted by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Music performed by Michael Lowenstern. Debate episodes co-hosted by Andrew Morrow. Audio editing by Brian Chappells. And copy editing by Megan Taylor. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free regular podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.